If you have a Bible, please open it to the seventh chapter of John. Um, if, if you uh, need the notes, are in the bulletin, or they're on our website if you're watching from afar. You may well want them this morning. We have a lot of ground to cover. And while you turn to John 7, let me try to set up a little bit of where we're going, what the purpose of this sermon is in a nutshell. Um, you, if you're alive today, you're aware of the turmoil, the conflict, the strife that's taking place in the world around us. Much of it made up by people making strong moral claims of judgment, condemnation against evils perceived, evils real. We ought to give that a hearing. We ought to listen whenever people cry out for justice, whenever people cry out to put an end to oppression. We ought to give that a hearing soberly and seriously. The last year and a half... I have been looking into these issues, talking to friends, having dialogues with others, trying to work through this. And as I've talked to people in our body, I've also discovered there are a number of people who I think could use some help thinking through this. I want to be clear, the purpose of this series is not fundamentally to answer the question, is America currently systemically racist? Is our police force currently systemically racist? The purpose of the series is not to answer that question. That question depends upon data and facts beyond the scope of Scripture. Rather, what would be useful, I think, is to look at a number of topics biblically so that as we each prayerfully investigate, as we each prayerfully look into these things, we might come to right conclusions. Um, one of my friends I went to school with that I have had um, Skype conversation with and a lot of internet correspondence who sold out on the belief that there is in fact currently much, I believe his term would be ethnocentric oppression, very reasonable Bible-centered man. One of the things that became clear to me as we were talking, at least as far as I can tell, is significantly different understandings of what is justice. And, and more to the point, what is required to make moral judgments? Um, you could think of this as jurisprudence. If, if we're going to condemn someone else, if we're going to condemn others, what is required biblically for such judgments to be righteous, such denunciations to be right? I'll direct you to John chapter 7, where Jesus speaks to this very issue. Now, in John 7, Jesus has gone up to the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. The Feast of Booths was intense. Intense. I apologize. The Feast of Booths. And at the Feast of Booths, he gets up and begins teaching. And there's no small debate over how to take him, how to respond to him. So Jesus makes this judgment statement in verse 24. Now, specifically, he's addressing himself and whether or not he is sinful for healing a man on the Sabbath. But the statement has a larger implications for us. But notice Jesus' command. It's simple and straightforward. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The word for right judgment, that word right could be translated righteous. 
just as easily could be translated just. So our title this morning, Judge with Just or Righteous or Right Judgment. So Jesus gives a command here. They're coming to conclusions. Is Jesus breaking the law? Is he worthy of condemnation? And Jesus says, you are to judge me for that. But you don't judge by appearances. You judge with right or righteous judgment. Now, one of the terms we'll be using through this series is the word justice or injustice. I've, and, and definitions of terms, I think, is critical. My working definition for this series is a short definition. As I've looked at others' attempts, we get these big, long definitions. But I think this will work. A failure to fulfill your duty to your neighbor. Duty as God commands, duty as Caesar commands, whatever obligation I have to my neighbor, justice is performing that obligation, injustice is not performing that obligation. Most of the biblical commands in this regard are prohibitive. You shall not steal, you shall not kill. So justice demands I fulfill my duty to you by not killing you, by not stealing from you. Justice commands other things as well. So simple working definition of injustice, a failure to fulfill your duty to your neighbor, which means then that as we think of God's law, injustice can take some strange forms. Paul says in Thessalonians, if someone does not work, let them not eat. Given my definition of justice, I would say it is unjust to give food to someone who will not work. Think that one through. It is unjust It's unjust, according to Genesis chapter 9, not to put to death convicted murderers. What is due? It's unjust for me to take the life of my neighbor wrongly. It's unjust for me to take their property. And we can go through, and we're going to have a message looking through, okay, what what does God require of me in regards to my neighbor? But that's one of the definitions here, injustice. So we're going to move through this topic. There's a lot of texts. You can already turn back if you'd like to Deuteronomy. We'll be spending a fair amount of time in Deuteronomy. But for starters, we're going to look at the admonition for just judgments. The admonition for just judgments. And, and I've wanted to teach this message for a long time. This is helpful not simply evaluating the claims being made by protesters, the claims being made by others. This is critical for any moral judgments you and I come to. Judging your neighbor, two rows down. Judging your political opponents. Judging your political friends. Judging laws. Judging nations. Judging yourself. We make judgments, moral judgments, constantly. It's inescapable. The question is, will we make righteous, right judgments or unrighteous judgments? So, John 7, 24, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Jesus here repeats an Old Testament command. Jesus repeats an Old Testament command. Now, let's read to you. In other words, Jesus is not bringing some new standard to the table. He is repeating an oft-quoted theme. Deuteronomy 1, 16 to 17. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for judgment is God's. 
and the cases that are too hard for you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 20, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to the tribes, and you shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. That you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So when Jesus says, don't judge by appearances, judge with just or righteous judgment. He's repeating, and I can show you many more passages with this theme. God cares about justice and just judgments. So Jesus repeats an Old Testament command. But I want you to notice something else. Jesus' primary concern is for our method of judgment. And why do I point that out? So often you and I get caught up in whether we're right or wrong. Jesus doesn't say get it right. I do believe Jesus assumes if you think biblically, you will get the right answer in regards to him. But Jesus' contrast is not between right and wrong verdicts, but right and wrong methods. You can judge by appearances, and that's prohibited. Or you can judge with righteous judgment. What that means is if you judge by appearances and still get the right answer, you are unrighteous. You are disobeying Jesus. In other words, if you say, well, I've got my own way of coming to judgments. I follow my hunches, follow my gut. I've got a discerning spirit. I just, I know it when I see it, call him like I see him. And even if you're right, you're wrong. You're disobeying Jesus. And so oftentimes we use our conviction that we are right to justify sloppy, unbiblical conclusions. Even if you are right, you're unrighteous. You're disobeying Jesus here. He's primarily concerned about methodology. Now, to be clear, following a biblical methodology, I think, will frequently bring us to the right conclusion. Certainly in the case of Jesus, as he's arguing biblically about why he's not breaking the Sabbath and healing a man. That's the inescapable conclusion. But I'll say this now. I think it was possible for people in Israel to follow the commands of judgment and justice rightly and let the guilty go free for lack of evidence or due to a strong and organized conspiracy condemn the innocent. God's concern is we follow his method and pattern. And for us, it's always going to be tempting to say, well, I'm going to abandon God's method of coming to conclusions because I want to be right. Jesus' concern is primarily for method. That's where most of the instructions on judgment go. Listen to Leviticus 19. You shall do no injustice in your courts. You should not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you judge your people. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You should not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So again and again and again, you will not judge this way. You will not judge this way. You will judge this way. So, Jesus gives the command, which makes it clear then, all of our moral judgments are either in obedience to Jesus' command, righteous and good, or they're disobeying Jesus. And what's the word for when we disobey Jesus? Sin. So, that raises the question, point two, in one of the largest sections of our study, how 
Do you make just judgments? Or to follow the alliteration outline, the administration of just judgments. How do you carry them out? Jesus gives the command. I think he assumes his audience knows, given how much the book of Deuteronomy speaks to this and other passages. So we're going to turn now to mainly two passages in Deuteronomy, but we'll be looking at others. Turn to Deuteronomy 17, please. Deuteronomy is helpful because the very name Deuteronomos, second law, it's the restatement of the law. So Deuteronomy sort of summarizes and restates this Sinai covenant, the law of Moses. And much attention is given throughout the book to justice and just judgments. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 2. If there is found among you, within any of your towns, that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgression of his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, and has told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel... Then you shall bring out of your gates the man or the woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone the man or woman to death with stones on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses. The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death by the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." Doing the capital case. By the way, one of the things to note, there's not a different procedure for different severities of charges. There's justice, only justice. And so we're dealing with a capital offense. Let's look at it again in chapter 19, where a new wrinkle is brought in. Starting in verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit such an evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And so what we get added here is the penalty for false witness is the exact same as the what the charge would have been, and we even get some clarification on false witnesses. So those are my two main passages. We could look to others. So I want to walk through the administration of just judgments in three points. First, carrying out righteous judgment, you need to have the right goal. You need to have the right goal. This may seem obvious, but it needs to be stated. Justice and only justice. Remember that, that sentence, justice and only justice in Deuteronomy 16? Justice and only justice shall you follow. There's just justice. If someone asks me, do you believe, do you 
you support social justice. It depends what you mean. If by social justice you mean justice applied to society, then amen, hallelujah, I'm in favor of it. Just as I would be in favor of justice applied to the business world. Justice applied to socioeconomic world. Justice in the home. Sure, justice applied in the sphere. But I think what is more and more often meant by social justice is a different type of justice with different measurements and different weights and different rules. Well, in that case, absolutely not. There's just justice. There's just justice. We can apply it in different spheres. What God requires of me is going to differ sphere by sphere. Absolutely. But there is justice. Only justice. If we're pursuing justice, we're not pursuing countering scales or trying to get different outcomes. We're pursuing justice. Whatever you're doing, if you're trying to redistribute, you're not pursuing necessarily justice. Justice is concerned with justice. That that's, may seem obvious, but it's worth stating. The second is I want you to notice, do not favor the poor or fear the great. Partiality and justice makes injustice. Listen to Leviticus 19. And I think this is important. So often we understand we don't want to favor the rich and powerful. We, we know that that's wrong. But sometimes we can be tempted to think justice, we, we can counterbalance the scales since the rich can afford the best attorneys, make the best defenses. We put our thumb on the scale to sort of help the poor, the underdog out. That's injustice. Listen to Leviticus 19. You shall do no injustice in your courts. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You don't take them into consideration. This is why I believe the statue of Lady Justice, she's wearing a blindfold. If I understand the purpose rightly, I agree. Good. Justice doesn't take into consideration socioeconomic status. Nationality, country of origin, melanin count, gender. Justice doesn't take these things into consideration. You don't favor, show partiality to the poor or to the great. It stops being justice if we do that. Justice is blind. There can be no affirmative action in justice. Justice means, then, a poor person being sued by a rich person may well be guilty. And we don't alter or change the verdict because of their weak status. A rich person may also be guilty. And we don't fear their friends in Washington. We don't fear their retribution. Justice only Justice. The right goal has got to be justice. So if you're going into this issue of justice with an outcome you want, with a distribution you want, be careful. The goal has to be justice, only justice. We're warned against partiality to favor the weak or the strong. Next, we look at the sufficient evidence that is required. The sufficient evidence. We saw the two or three witnesses. Now, I want to I'd make up a zero point here. Where you have confession of wrong, you don't need witnesses. In that sense, the person is a witness against himself. You remember the man who claimed to have killed Saul, who ran into David in 2 Samuel? 
even though Saul fell on his own sword and his servant was too fearful to take his life, this man boasted and claimed to have taken Saul's life. And David says in Second Samuel 1, How is it you were not afraid to put your hand out to destroy the Lord's anointed? David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down, so he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So where someone comes out and says what they have done, someone comes out and freely admits what they believe, and I want to qualify this, not under duress. We recognize that confessions made under torture and under pressure don't count. But you know, where you're sizing up a politician and they say what policies they endorse, they support the unfettered choice of women to abort children, perhaps. You, that is a wicked policy person who promotes that is promoting unrighteousness. I I can make that statement. I don't need multiple witnesses. This person freely admits to it. If someone comes out and says, yes, I cheated on my wife, we 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 know what to make of that. But where the, the person accused denies the charge now, we get the process that follows out and follows along. First point, two or three witnesses are needed to convict. Two or three witnesses are needed to convict. We read that in both of our passages. This is a high standard of evidence. This means guilty people will go free for lack of evidence. Clever people who are only seen by one person are ultimately going to get away with it. You may have heard the... uh, This quote from Sir William Blackstone, a uh, legal scholar in England in 1783, in his commentaries on the law of England, say, you've probably heard this quote or something like it. For the law holds, it's better that ten guilty persons escape than one innocent person suffer. So we see a high standard of evidence. And again, that means judging justly is going to be willing to let that person, there's only one witness, we can't condemn him. That's God's standard. It's not just fundamentally about being right, but being righteous in judgment. Two or three witnesses are needed to convict. Next, in Deuteronomy 19, we do get a case where a single witness could proceed. Now, the problem with a single witness is you're potentially headed for a deadlock. He said, she said, or he said, he said, or she said, she said. And how do you resolve that? We've already been told you don't condemn based on one testimony. Well, there is the possibility that through interviewing, cross-examining, interrogating, through asking questions, the, the liar can be revealed. If you remember the story of Solomon and the two women claiming the one child was each their own, that was such a conundrum. What do you do? It's a weighty matter. Whose child is this? Two women claiming that's my child. The Jed child is the other woman's. Remember the two, two prostitutes, one rolled over in bed, crushed the child in the morning. She claimed the other swapped it out. And, and so here's this tug of war over a child, and it's simply one testimony versus the other. And Solomon's wisdom is seen in how he was able to unmask the false mother, right? He says, fetch a sword. We'll divide the child in half. And for one of the women, that was acceptable. To the other, she said, no, let her have it. Let her have the child. And Solomon had unmasked the true mother. Because such cases of one-on-one are very difficult. We as Christians ought not decide with one or the other when you've got two people contradicting. Rather, sit down, talk, try to identify who's lying. And that's where things like, well, I know them, they wouldn't lie, carries nothing in this court. 
you don't condemn apart from the testimony of two or three witnesses. Even if you know one of them and you know they're trustworthy and you know they don't lie. That's not what the text says. Moses and all of Israel do not condemn apart from two or three witnesses. Now, one person could still bring a charge, but unless you reveal the liar, you're done. You you can't go any further. I want you to notice something else. It's a weighty thing to bring an accusation. It's a very weighty thing to bring an accusation because the witnesses initiate or receive punishment. That's the only two options. Whose hand throws the first stone? The witness's hand. If you prove to be a false witness, whatever the punishment demanded of your charge is against the person you lied about comes on your head. Which means if you're going to stand up as a witness, you need to be prepared either to be the first-handed administering judgment or that very judgment coming upon you. Do you think people would take seriously the matter of bringing a charge as a witness? Do you think people would take it lightly? Of course not. It would be a weighty thing. You either better be ready to pick up a rock or dodge some. Those are your options if you're going to be a witness. It is no light thing to bring a charge against somebody. That doesn't mean we shouldn't bring charges when they're warranted. We just don't do this quickly and lightly. And today's social media world wants us to do this constantly. With, with as much fire and vitriol as possible. Be careful. Be careful. The witnesses initiate or receive punishment. I'll read Deuteronomy 13, 6-9 for you again. If your brother, the son of your mother, or the son of your daughter, or your wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. Your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death. Why? Because you're the witness that came and said that to you. So making an accusation in Israel was no small thing. No small thing. But I want you to notice something else. There was a diligent inquiry. Both of our passages, Deuteronomy 17, you have diligent inquiry show up. If you look back at verse um, 4, it's told to you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain, Right? And back in chapter 19, again, we see that same phrase appear. Verse 17, both parties to the speech shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. Now, this is important because up to this point in the legal process, Jesus is justly condemned, right? Why? They had two or three witnesses. And I've already said, if you follow the law's prescription, it's conceivable that you may condemn an innocent person. But no, Jesus' condemnation is unrighteous and unjust because the witnesses contradicted themselves, right? It's not enough to have two or three people saying, yeah, he did it. You need to talk to them, ask questions of them, line up their stories. You need to slow down and do a diligent inquiry. And our fast-paced social media world does not want us to slow down and do diligent inquiries. We want judgments now, right? 
How many issues that you or I or others have been outraged at initially turn out in time to be very different than they seem? The initial accountings of events in Ferguson, for example, certainly turned out to be distinctly different from what investigative reviews turned out. And so we need to do a diligent inquiry. We need to look at the, the data. We need to, here's your blanks, a full and thorough investigation. But I want to be outraged now. Repent. Judge with righteous judgment. You don't condemn people before you've done a diligent inquiry, before you've got the sufficient Evidence. Now, this also means you don't condemn your political opponents just because it sounds like something Hillary would do. Right? I mean, this cuts both ways. You don't condemn your neighbor two rows in front of you because that sounds just like them. This is the sick, because it's justice. There's not justice for the church and justice for, it's just justice. And these weights and measures stay the same. And so we, we do this both to those we're predisposed to like and those we're predisposed not to like. We don't switch on our measurements based on who we're putting in the dock. We do a thorough and full investigation. Proverbs 18.13 gives this warning. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. It is shameful, it is foolish to give an answer without first hearing. Okay? Give an answer without hearing is folly and shame. Then cross-examination, there's your big blank, of all witnesses. Cross-examination of all witnesses. Proverbs 18.17 says this, One person's case seems right until another comes and examines him. What's that mean? That means when one side tells their story, you can get really, this is where you got to be really careful with your friends. Your friends will confide stories of woe to you. And that's partly, that's appropriate. That's what friends do. You need to remember, as much as you become sidled up and, and excited in defense for them, that's terrible, I can't believe they did that, you've only heard one side, Right? So I've learned to say things like, what you're describing sounds terrible. It's not mean I don't believe you. I don't have two or three witnesses of testimony for this to be confirmed. You're describing, I have no reason to think you're lying, but I can't condemn this person until I've heard their side, until I've got more information. So to try to be sympathetic, I'll say, what you're describing sounds awful. That sounds terrible. It's a way to try to sympathize, make it clear, wow, that, that's, that sounds really difficult. And I have no doubt you believe that's true. And I'm not even saying you're wrong, but I can't amen that. Do I hear more information? Stuart Scott, who wrote The Exemplary Husband, told a story of uh, some marriage counseling he was doing where the, the wife came in to his office with blue bruises on her forearms. And she said, look what my husband did to me. And she was outraged. And she, she wanted um, Stuart to condemn her husband and justify or whatever action she wanted to do. And he had the wisdom to go meet with the man. The man was in his tool shop working, and he, Stuart came in, Dr. Scott came in, and said, your wife came in to see me. The man said, oh, she showed me her forearms. Did you do that? Yeah. 
what was going on? And then the man said, well, did she tell you what she was doing? No. She was coming at me with two kitchen knives, and I was stopping her arms. Well, that, that certainly changes things, doesn't it, right? One person's case seems right till another comes and examines him. A diligent inquiry is patient. A diligent inquiry reserves outrage. A diligent inquiry is pursuing truth and justice, not the outcome I want it to be. This is so applicable in so many areas of our life. I mean, it's applicable here with some of the um, rash and speedy judgments that are being made. But it's applicable in so many areas of our life. That is the administration. You need to have the right goal. You need sufficient evidence. And I might say in our day, two or three witnesses could also mean two or three independent lines of evidence. In one sense, video footage is a witness. A recording is a witness. I mean, evidence, but you need two or three independent lines of examinable, cross-examinable evidence. You need to hear both sides of a matter. That's, that's the administration of just judgments. Now, up to this point, you may say, well, Jeremy, that's great. This is the nation of Israel. We're not under the law. We're under grace. We're the church. The church isn't the new Israel. So what's this to us? I'm glad you asked. Point three, briefly, the adoption of just judgments. The adoption of just judgments. Now, I'm going to go through this quickly. But let me ask you, just even as I was reading through this, and you heard those two or three witnesses, two or th- does that ring any New Testament bells? Any passages in the New Testament, two or three witnesses. This is the exact standard of evidence. This is the exact weights and measures of evidence the New Testament church appropriates for its courts and its discipline. Listen to Matthew 18. You'll recognize it. It's, un, it's, not, even, it's not even like a loose reference. It's a direct quote. Matthew 18 Verses 15 to 20. If your brother listens to you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Oh, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's a direct quote of Deuteronomy. So Jesus gives his church the permission and the responsibility to Give judgments in certain cases. And he makes it clear what weight of evidence he requires in those judgments. It's the standard in Deuteronomy, unchanged. In fact, if you kept reading one of the most misquoted verses in the New Testament, you hear people, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am. We're talking about discipline, folks. Again, I tell you, in verse 19... Um, if two or three on earth agree about anything they ask, it's done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I think Jesus is promising that if we were faithful to follow this practice and these steps, our judgments reflects his judgments. It's not talking about a Bible study. Or 2 Corinthians 13.1, Paul's ready to come and battle with the false teachers in Corinth. And he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Every charge, not just major charges. This isn't just the standard for big deals, but small matters, you need less evidence. Every charge must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The charges the false teachers are making against Paul, the charges Paul intends to make against the false teachers. 
On what evidence do you admit a charge against an elder? Same standard. 1 Timothy 5.19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But most notable, if you're still in John, turn to John 18, John chapter 8. Jesus invites this same standard of judgment on himself. This is the standard by which you judge the Son of God. John chapter 8. In verse 17, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. What's Jesus saying? I wouldn't expect you to take my word alone, but the Father has spoken and testified. Elsewhere in John, he'll point to my my works, my miracles, are a line of evidence of testimony. John the Baptist is another line of evidence of testimony. Have you ever thought about this? Why do we have four Gospels? Why why not just one? You could have a sort of more fuller, thicker Gospel. Because we get four independent witnesses. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God doesn't even expect his church to receive this testimony. Except the the testimony of two or three, or in this case, four witnesses. Right? We can be sure of these things. This is the standard of evidence for the church. Plus or minus nothing. And the sphere of our domain of judgment, maybe it is in fact different. We're not putting people to death. But how we come to moral judgments is identical. Whether it be directed towards Jesus, an elder, a person in sin, Paul battling with false teachers, it's the same standard of evidence. Okay, The adoption of just Judgments. Now, with what time we have, I want to make seven application points. The application of just judgments. So to recap where we've been. Jesus makes this an issue of faith for us. Do not judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. So then you and I are either obeying that or disobeying that. So then we've studied what does it mean to make righteous, just judgments. It means having the right goal. Justice. Only justice. You're not showing partiality. It means you've got sufficient evidence. You've done a diligent inquiry. You've heard both sides of a matter. Then you can make confident judgments. Turn to Matthew 7 for the application. We're trying to bring it home here with seven points of application for us. Matthew 7 is also one of the most widely known. I think Matthew 7, 1 is more well-known worldwide than John 3.16 is anymore. Right? It does not mean what they think it means. But there is a warning here for us. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. See, Jesus isn't in effect ultimately saying not to judge. We'll keep reading. You'll see he actually expects us to judge. Rather, there's this, be careful how you judge. You better be really careful how you go about judging. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice in verse 5, what do you do finally? You do indeed take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus does not mean judge not stop taking out specks. It's methodological. Stop taking out specks when you've got four by fours sticking out of your eye. That's what he means. It's methodological. How we make judgments. Moral judgments are inescapable. I'm a parent, I know. Constantly my children are coming to me and they want me to render a verdict. Was this child mean to this child? Was this child mean to this child? We're hardwired for justice. We want justice. So simply saying, I don't judge. Yeah, you do. Now you're just lying. You do. I do. It's inescapable. What matters is we do it righteously. So seven points. Seven points. I'll try to move with some speed, but... We're probably not singing our closing song. I'll just say that. Okay. One, judge with a just and consistent standard. Judge with a just and consistent standard. By just, I mean the method we've just looked at. Judge that way and do it consistently. The temptation for us, the temptation for us, is to, we want to bring out with all the bells and whistles this type of judgment when it's someone we don't like. And when it's us, we make all sorts of excuses. And well, you got to understand, I was having a bad day. And No, it's the same, same standard. Jesus makes that clear in, in, in Matthew 7. With the same standard you judge others, you will be judged. Listen to Proverbs 20.23. That's a typo. 20.23. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord. And false scales are not good. Right? You always believe the woman until you don't always believe the woman. We saw some people change their ethical judgment standard. There's one example of the hypocrisy of changing your rules. Always believe the victim until your guy's accused. And then, well, don't believe the victim. Sometimes victims lie. And I'm not advocating one side or the other. That I'm simply saying when your standard changes, you're self-condemned. But we can do the exact same thing. We begin to defend the indefensible because we're just, we just we got to defend our team. Go man the barricades. Make the def- best defense for our guys we can. No, it's justice, only justice we should pursue. We're not partial. We use the same standard for people we want to be guilty and people we want to be innocent. Not that you should want either. You should want justice. Okay? Judge with a just and consistent standard. This even goes for ourselves. Listen to Paul in Romans 12, 3. By the grace given, I say that everyone among you is not to think more highly of himself than he ought, but to think with sober judgment. Have a consistent and just standard. Have a consistent and just standard. Next, judge within your own jurisdiction. Judge within your own jurisdiction. We're Americans. We're expected to voice our opinion, right, on everything. Listen to Jesus' remarkable response in Luke 12. Luke 12, 13 to 14. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to a man, Who made me a judge or arbiter over you? You ever respond that way? 
hopefully we do sometimes. Yeah, I don't know if this is any of my concern. I don't know if I need to render a judgment about this celebrity breakup and who wronged who. Right? What business is that of mine? Um, judge within your own jurisdiction. Or listen to 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those with, who are inside the church whom you're to judge? This is a jurisdictional issue. We have a jurisdiction over watching out for each other's faithfulness in, in the Christian walk. And that may require bringing verdicts of sin and guilt where people are unrepentant. That's wholly appropriate. That's our jurisdiction. It's not our jurisdiction to do that with the world. What have I to do with judging outsiders? So before you make a judgment, do I have any basis to do this? Now let me pause and say, especially in our country where the freedom of assembly and freedom of speech are given, I think it is wholly appropriate for people convinced that there is systemic wickedness and injustice taking place to make use of the, that is an appropriate sphere. If, if you believe that, where that's the case, by all means, speak about it, denounce it civilly, respecting your other image bearers. But absolutely, that is an appropriate thing to speak out against. I don't want to suggest here that if there is systemic oppression in our country, we ought to be sound. But no, if there is, Using the rights, the privileges we have. Paul made use of his Roman privileges, appealing to Caesar, refusing to go out secretly when they beat him publicly. So I don't, I don't want to suggest that. But for us, and I'm thinking more just for the judgments we make offhandedly every day, stop and think, do I have any basis of rendering a verdict over here? What, what possible sphere of authority do I have? What possible jurisdiction do I have? Over this matter. Third, judge without partiality. Judge without partiality. First Timothy 5.21 puts it this way. Now listen to the solemnness of this. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. We don't, we don't favor the poor, we don't favor the rich, we don't favor our friends, we don't tip the scales against those we don't like. We don't show partiality. We're pursuing justice, only justice in our judgments. Judge without partiality. Next, judge without gossip or slander. Judge without gossip or slander. In Matthew 18, Jesus avoids this by saying, hey, if your brother sins, go talk to him, just you and him alone. Don't share it as a prayer request first. If you're going to give the person's name. Don't share it with eight other people first. Go talk to your brother. Judge without gossip or slander. It may be appropriate to speak out against a politician, to speak out against a person publicly, um, you need to have the evidence. You need to have done your research. You need to have a just judgment. It needs to be something you have a legitimate purview to speak to. Otherwise, turn to James 4. Otherwise, you end up... Remember, in the Old Testament, what happened if you made a false accusation? Whatever you accused came back on your own head. 
James 4. Verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you are, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And a clear implication is judging in an unbiblical way. God, in his law, we, you, there's a way you and I can judge that we're under the law. We're obeying God. God tells us, these are the times and places you are to render a judgment. Here's how you go about rendering a judgment. When we do that, we're not placing ourselves above the law. We're servants under the law. But when we take it upon ourselves to judge outside of our jurisdiction, to judge by standards that God has not given, to judge with methods that are not his, we act lawlessly, we act above the law. And, and James says, understand when you do that, you're usurping God's prerogative and role. So when we announce our unrighteous judgments about others or other people, we become judges of the law and those who would usurp God's judgment. It's a high crime during a false accusation. Point E, judge without making assumptions. Judge without making assumptions. Um, it was instructive to consider 1 Samuel 16, 7. God sends Samuel to find his replacement king, to anoint the new king after Saul has once, then twice, displeased the Lord, been unfaithful and disobedient. Saul is very impressed with David's older brother. And the Lord has this to say to him. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height or stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We cannot assume motive. So tempting for us. So tempting. I think I know what's going on in your heart. Pretty sure I know what you were thinking. And you're playing God when you announce those as judgments. It's fair enough to ask questions. Hey, when you did that, it seemed as though you were thinking or acting, and then you hear what they have to say. This is the Proverbs. The thoughts of a man's heart are deep waters, and a man of understanding draws them out. By asking questions, the person reveals their thoughts, reveals what they were thinking. By all means, that's fine. By all means, if you have a suspicion or a thought, I think that the, go talk and draw that out. But understand that when you say no, no, I will tell you what you were thinking. I know what was going on in your heart and mind. You are taking the place of God. That that's honestly what makes so many of these racism issue charges so difficult. We can look at the killing of a man by a police officer. And with near uniformity, we can gasp in horror. It's horrible. Something here is terribly broken and wrong. This, this looks needless. This looks like it does not need to happen. I cannot comprehend of an explanation that could justify what I've watched. And I am thankful that the FBI and state authorities are thoroughly investigating it. That looks wholly appropriate. But to take the next stop, 
and declare with confidence that, that you know what was going on in Derek Shavin's mind, unless he's admitted it. You're playing God. You're playing God. Or to think that you know what your neighbor two chairs down was thinking on why they did what they did. You're playing God. You're playing God. You don't make assumptions. 1 Corinthians 13, in fact, tells us that in verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. If you're leaning anywhere, you're leaning towards what's the best possible explanation? What's the least bad this could be? You're hoping that. In 1 Timothy 6, 4, we learned that one of the signs of, of wickedness is He's describing a false teacher, having an unhealthy craving for controversies, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. We ought not to be judging, making assumptions, going with our mind already made up. We need to be impartial, sincere, full of mercy and good fruits, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So not only do we need to not judge others' motives, we need to judge with right motives ourselves. If you've determined this is an issue it's fitting for me to speak to, this is within my jurisdiction, and if you've used a righteous method, you've collected your evidence, you've sorted it out, the thorough investigation has been done, and if you're not showing partiality and you haven't made any assumptions, you now need to check your own heart because there's always a danger that we want to render a verdict to make ourselves feel better or to put someone maybe down in their place. Pride and self-righteousness. This is why the Pharisees rendered their judgments, right? This accursed people who do not know the law. Or, I love this, Nicodemus stands up for Jesus. Remember in, in John, um, in John... No, and then three is when he first meets him. But he stands up for him. He says, does our law judge someone without first giving him a hearing? And they respond to him saying, are you from Galilee too? No, this is about self-righteousness. This is about sneering down your nose at someone. And we've got to make sure that's not going on in our heart. The, the purpose of judgments in church discipline, the churches of judgments in the church, are for restoration, even ultimately that their, their soul may be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you be tempted to bear one of those burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. 2 Timothy 2 lays out that we are, to, we are to correct our opponents gently, hoping that God might grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth. And again, the correct motive for publicly speaking out would be to call attention to and end social injustice. That's wholly appropriate. Where it's taking place, where a person's convinced it's taking place. If you've done your homework, you've got the evidence, by all means... Speak, use your voice, appeal to Caesar. I don't want to, we, we got to think through this carefully. I know that many in the name of protesting are actually doing vandalism and crime. That's wicked. There are many who are protesting. We should hear. But we should say, okay, show the evidence. You've, you've clearly come to a moral judgment. You've clearly made your mind up. And perhaps you've done the diligent inquiry and you've got the evidence. I need to see it. Show me that evidence. And I, too, will be willing, if you, if you have 
sufficient evidence, if we can cross-examine it, we can look at it, then I too will abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. In the little bit of investigations I've done, the books I've read, the YouTube videos I've watched, people I've talked to, what I've found is a shortage of actual evidence. Uh, This is just my experience. You may have a different experience, but my experience, what I've seen is someone will show me, here's 15, 20 fishy things. And I'll agree, those are are some fishy things. Someone should do a thorough investigation on those fishy things. That's suspicious looking. It's not evidence that you'd put someone to death by in Israel. The thorough investigation hasn't been done. There's a sloppiness to it. There's There's a lack of diligence to it. I'm not denying that there isn't systemic racism. I, in my experience, in my judgment, in my investigation, I have yet to see the evidence that meets this standard to make that moral condemnation. If you've got it, I'll be happy to, t- I would be thankful to be instructed. In fact, that's why I said my brother is ministering in California. And I said, look, I'm in Iowa. I'm sure you're seeing things I'm not seeing in L.A., what are you seeing? I, if, if it's clear and it's there, I will abhor it. I will speak against it. I will withstand it. Um, so far in our discussions, I, I haven't seen something that meets this standard. Um, you, you may have a different experience, but that's why I wanted to start here. That as we listen to each other and we talk to each other, we need to have an agreed-upon standard. God's given at least his people an agreed-upon standard of what weight of evidence is necessary to bring a moral judgment. Which brings me to my final point. Judge with confidence in the final judgment. Judge with confidence in God's final judgment. You see, all of our justice on earth, all of our judgments on earth, will be weak and frail. We know from experience, sometimes in this life, people get away with it. Joseph Stalin, in this life, oppressed Killed, murdered millions. He died in power. There was no justice for Joseph Stalin in this life. Right? And we know, I've already told you that for lack of evidence, guilty people may go free. Perhaps there are evils at work in our system. I have no doubt our system's corrupt in various ways, but you can't correct it till you've shown it. That will never uncover for lack of evidence. But we as Christians need to be comfortable, willing. I'm not not saying that we shouldn't jealously pursue justice. We should. We'll see in the coming weeks. God is passionate about justice. But we don't cut corners in pursuit of that because we know there is a day where God will judge the living and the dead. And those wicked people who get away with it now will not get away with it then. Jesus is emphatic on this point in Matthew chapter 12. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. See, you can be willing to let the guilty slip through your fingers because you didn't have enough evidence. That's the temptation. I'm pretty sure it looks really bad. I think I know what's going on in this heart, and I don't want him to get away with it. God just says, be obedient. Judge with just judgments, and I will take care of perfect judgment. Jesus was willing to 
endure the mistreatments that came to him, according to 1 Peter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We, we need to be willing to trust the person you think may be wronging you with ill motives. You can't prove because they won't admit to it. They're not fooling God. God judges nations. The Psalms are full of people crying out to God to judge the nations. So, amen, work for justice in the society. Call out evil. Amen, that's a good thing. Be willing to listen to others who claim to have done the work. To them it's clear. But then demand an evidence before you fall in line. Because so often today it's not simply enough for others to speak. They want you to amen. And where the evidence is there, Amen. Don't shortcut it. Work through it. Think through it. But, but judge with just judgments. Whether you're judging our society, our police force, Black Lives Matter, the group, whether you're evaluating the claims of the protesters, whether it's your neighbor, whether it's your son or daughter, whether it's your wife, whether it's your political guy, whether it's your opponent's political, wherever, adopt a consistent and just standard. Judge within your jurisdiction. Judge without partiality. Judge without gossip or slander. Judge without making assumptions. Judge with right motives. But ultimately, trust in the one who will judge the living and the dead. Let's pray. Lord God, you will judge the world in righteousness. Let us be content with that. Let us jealously, zealously pursue justice where we can in this world. But let us be faithful to your commands, to your methodology, not cut corners. Lord God, I pray that you would root out evil in our system, that you would expose unjust and unrighteous laws wherever they exist in our land, that you would give us clarity in seeing them, that where our neighbor cries out against oppression rightly, that you would help us to see that, that we would join in that cry with them. But Lord, where corners have been cut, where evidence has not been gathered, where diligent and thorough inquiry has not been done, give us the courage to keep our mouths closed and trust that you will judge rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.